Hi, Sonia. Good morning, Jamie. How has your week been so far? Interesting. I have been reading articles about artificial intelligence and human existence, so human-machine interactions. And I was very curious about how we change with artificial intelligence and what do we need to stay human. And there was an interesting article I posted on LinkedIn about how emotional intelligence is something that we can work on, that we can grow with, that makes a difference for us. So my mind has been busy with these things. And how has your week been? My week's been okay. We're in a break from school right now. So it's been a little bit chaotic, but I'm rolling with it. <laughs> and um, I'm actually super excited about our guest today. So if you would go ahead and let our listeners know what we have in store, I think they'll be just as excited. Our guest today is Charlie Kendall. If you haven't heard of him, you must be living under a rock or come from a different planet. Charlie's reputation is nothing short of legendary, with a track record filled with remarkable achievements. During his time in key roles, he held at Snap AV, Control 4, Amazon, and Microsoft. Among these, he's the brilliant mind behind the creation of Alexa. You know, that little digital assistant that graces countless homes worldwide? He's also an enthusiastic investor in space technology and has an insatiable curiosity for technological advancements. Yet, what truly sets Charlie apart goes beyond his impressive professional portfolio. Let me introduce you to the person who was affectionately named Tigger by his sister. Despite his numerous accolades, Charlie remains remarkably humble and kind-hearted. Recently, he embarked on a journey to help others by starting a coaching company. His genuine care for those around him and his unwavering commitment to doing what is right for humanity. That is what sets him apart. Today, we welcome Tig, a genuinely good human being that I am fortunate to call a friend. Tigger, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Jamie and I are very curious about two things. The major topic we want to focus on is how can we create this world in a sustainable way? How can we make it sustainable for humanity? She sees it from a perspective that, it, that goes um, in how can this environment be created? How can interactions with humans be created? Where is the technology going? I'm curious about that. And in addition, I'm looking for how the leadership can change the way that humanity is driving this, this interaction and how can we get better? We observed something in our recent conversations, um, and that is that because of the way that we communicate differently with each other these days, it is the communication is becoming more asynchronous, meaning instead of being in the same room, connecting with each other and talking live, we tend to use more of a Slack messages, text messages, email messages. There is always a delay in how we respond. Did that give us time to think about the response? And so what we're seeing is that when we get in person, suddenly that technology is gone. There is no impact. There is no delay. And suddenly we have to have an answer right away. And that can cause anxiety in people. 
Have you seen of that, some of that? What do you think about this? Well, I think that that human interaction has definitely changed, um, you know, the evolution of the species and our civilization over the last, what, four or 500 years has been really dramatic. And in the last hundred years, um, even more. And the, the rate of change is actually accelerating. Uh, this asynchronous modality that you talked about is very real and it's becoming um, more and more, I think, dominant. And the questions that I have around it are, you know, how can we just be more aware of it as individuals and train ourselves to recognize that it may not be the most optimal way to communicate with people, but also how can we use technology to, to not be a detriment, but to be um, an augment um, our interactions. Um, so I think a lot about those types of things, and I think there's a lot of opportunities there, and we're seeing uh, some early stage uh, ideas and, and things that, are, that, that might have an impact. Where do you see the difference between in-person communication versus virtual communication? What is the major difference in your opinion? Well, I, I think that if let's discount the asynchronous nature and just focus on uh, interacting like we are right now via video teleconference as we're recording this podcast. This is not asynchronous. This is live. It's face to face. I had the opportunity to work on Amazon Alexa and enable a human computer voice based interaction system that really delights a lot of people and it works really well. Um, but it, it's, it's still very lacking, just as what we're doing right now is actually lacking. Like I joke when I talk about those people, like if we were in person right now, subconsciously, we would be smelling each other. Our, our, your pheromones would be impacting me and mine would be yours. And we don't have that level of interaction either if it's human to human over a video teleconference or human to computer via something like Alexa. Um, and I think it's fascinating to think of you know how far we've come with the the voice-based interface with with computers, and to think about what's next. And um, as AIs get smarter and more capable and more natural, you know that's one dimension of it. But the other dimension is you know when are we going to get smell-o-vision um, or the you know, the ability to to interact with with the computer in a way beyond just voice, but using touch, using sense, all of our senses. And then imagine if there's a if there's a Zoom-like interface where you and I, as we're communicating, we also can uh, have the fullness of human interaction. And there's no reason why we can't build the technology that enables that. And so I, I'm confident we will as a civilization, and it'll, and it'll bring us even closer together. So that means you don't see artificial intelligence as, a, as something, as a threat. It is more a tool that can make us better. Yeah, in general, I, I do believe it it is much more of a positive thing for our civilization um, than a negative thing. I think there's definitely risks um, and we need to be conscious of those, but a lot of what is going to be invented hasn't been invented yet. And if we are to, if we're too nervous and worried about where it's going to go and we stifle innovation now, we're actually missing out on a lot of opportunity. And so I'm, I'm, I'm actually more fearful of that than I am of, you know, oh my gosh, we're going to have Terminator, the movie come to life um, in the near term. I, I actually, I think that's, that's fairly far-fetched. Why do you think so many artists have focused on Terminator or this dystopian view of AI and less on perhaps maybe the more mundane aspects of 
have being able to communicate face to face or something like that? Is it just that it's more flashy and interesting or why do you think? Uh, I've talked to Sonia a little bit about this. I, one of the things that I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big student of around humanity is our biases and our built-in uh, predispositions that we're all wired with. One of the, you know, confirmation bias and recency bias and those biases. Well, one of them is negativity bias. And, and, and generally, as humans, if um, there is something that is unknown to us and we don't have the information, we tend to go to the worst possible place naturally. So I think that's a big part of it. And I think that that uh, recency bias plays in as well. Um, you know, these types of inventions where technology is advanced to the point where it's threatened people's livelihoods or skills, it's not, this, that's not a new phenomenon. It's been happening for, for hundreds of years. And we've gotten through it and the world is a far better place as a result. The, the quality of life is so far better than it's ever been for the vast majority of a much larger population. And so those biases, in my opinion, are a driver of a lot of the negativity. And my hope and my what I wish more people would do is stop and pause and think about the fact that, yeah, I, I do have biases and they are influencing me. And maybe instead of taking the most negative approach, I could focus on what I can control and maybe go learn more about it or experiment with it. I have a particular, uh, uh, my own particular use case of this where uh, I was diving into chat GPT and trying to learn about it. And I do, uh, I, I have a hobby of computer programming. I like to say that I pretend to code for fun. And I've done this for a long time. And I started using chat GPT to help me. And what I found more than anything else is it actually gave me more confidence and, and I wanted to do more. And so that was a learning I had. And my dream is that people take the, the negativity off and they instead apply that energy to actually diving in and learning more about it. And my own experience tells me that people will discover really great things as a result. Tig, is it possible that people are negative and biased towards things that they don't understand or they don't know enough about? Yeah, for sure. I think that that is, that is what negativity bias is. So then in terms of you know, AI coming for us and taking our jobs and our livelihoods, which is something that you just mentioned. It seems almost like you see it as a possibility that it will liberate us. Do you see two paths or what path do you see forward in terms of the future of how we work? Yeah. First of all, I don't think there's a simple answer and I don't think it's, it's you know, A or B. I think it's an and, and it was a lot of ands. Um, and there will be uh, disruption in people's lives. There will be people who will uh, have to change careers and even lose jobs. Um, and that there's no doubt about that. But at the same time, there's going to be many more opportunities that we can't even envision. You know, the same thing happened when the printing press was invented. Um, same thing happened when the automobile was introduced. The personal computer, there is the, 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 all these fears that people are going to be without jobs. And you know, the best predictor of the future is what's happened before. And um, what's happened before, whenever there's a massive disruptive technological innovation, the world gets better and more free time is created and more opportunities are created. So uh, the data just shows that over and over again. And so I can't predict the future, but what I can do is look at the past and uh, my, my I'm, I'm wired to think that that's the greatest predictor of of what's going to happen. That doesn't mean to say there aren't huge challenges, but I definitely have a, a much more optimistic view of it. 
So sometimes people go into that victim mode when it is easier to just shut down and 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 hide. How can someone get out of that? I mean, you do a lot of coaching, leadership coaching. I am sure you face some of these situations with your clients. It's a very common thing. It's a common thing, not just for individuals, but it actually, it can be an organizational dynamic. I mean, I spent a lot of time doing leadership development at you know, mid-size, small, small scale uh, companies or organizations that are growing and dealing with a lot of uh, growth issues. And this, this victimhood uh, tends to come up even when things are going really well. People get really nervous because they're, fr- they're afraid of change. And a couple things that, that I find help is, um, is finding someone who you can uh, you know, rely on like a coach that can remind you of just little things like, you know, focus on what you can control. Rinse and repeat that over and over again. Focus on what you can control and ignore all those, try and ignore all those things that you can't control. Um, That helps. Um, I've also found that getting thoughtful about change, because a lot of this has to do with change, getting thoughtful about how you can be an agent of change and a driver of change versus being in the back seat. And there's tools out there. You know, I have a, there's a, a really famous uh, formula for how to, how to manage change. Uh, D times V times F has to be greater than, than R. Um, I suggest people look that up. It's fascinating and very simple, easy to understand mental model for how to deal with change. The first thing as I say is like, if, if you're struggling with all this stuff as an individual or even an organization, uh, find someone who you can rely on, a coach. So let's say you're a business leader and you've accepted that you are a driver of change and you don't really know what to do next. What types of technology could you use to help everyone else realize the same vision that you have? That's a really interesting question. There's so many different ways you can go with this. The thing that popped into my head as you were asking the question was write it down. I've always been a writer. I didn't really learn to write well until I got to Amazon and I, I, I learned the Amazon culture of the, of the written word and using narrative documents in meetings other than PowerPoints. And it uh, really solidified for me um, how important it is to write it down in real English or whatever your language is with you know, sentences and paragraphs, beginning, middle and end, because nothing creates a bit more clarity of thought than the written word and the act of writing. Even if you don't plan on publishing it for anyone else to read, write it as though um, you were gonna have other people read it. I guarantee you, you will be a, a more clear thinker as a result. I love it. Your answer is the oldest technology possible. So these days, um, books are being written by Chat GPT on different topics. How do we see where there is a human factor there? Yeah, isn't it interesting that you can almost, you can see LinkedIn posts and blog posts and you're like, hmm, I think that was written by ChatGPT. Um, there's there's got to be some phrase for that, like the, the sensing, the, the non-sentience. Yeah, I, it's, a, it, it's a topic that is, uh, it is one of the, the, the ones that is a little bit more worrisome. Um, how do you detect whether something you're reading uh, is, is, was really written by a human or not? That said, I have found using ChatGPT to help me get started on something is really useful. And, um, and I have no qualms about using it myself to get, you know, get past writer's block or to, to create an initial framework. But I also have learned that you know, the, the word they're using in, in large language model AI 
circles around this is, is these AIs, they hallucinate, right? They're called hallucinations. And when they say things that are simply not true, and, you know, like one of the fun things to do is go to ChatGPT and ask it to write your own personal bio. And you'll be amazed by the amount of BS it makes up. It's, it's you know, there'd be a little bit of reality. And then suddenly these things are like, what? And it's an hallucination. And you got, we've all got to learn to sense that, sense those and, and, uh, and be cognizant of them. That goes back to what you said earlier. If we want to have some clarity of thought, then we need to sit down and write something because the process of writing can create the clarity of thought. If we always go to a tool to do these things for us, yes, we will be faster, but the clarity of thought will not be there. Yeah, I had another thought on this and I've been, I've been uh, actually working on writing this one down. Um, when I when I got to Amazon and I and I learned this culture of writing and how serious writing was taken, and I was blessed to have been you know in a, in a in a whole bunch of meetings with Jeff Bezos where it was my document he was reading, the other people in the room were reading, so I got you know kind of exposed to this really quickly. I discovered something that was non-intuitive, which is it made everybody else a better reader too. And so I, I have a suspicion that this idea that we need to be more cognizant that what we're reading may not have been written by a human is going to force people to be better readers because you're going to pay more attention to the details as you're reading. And you're going to question every word and every number um, and every statement. And that, I think it's actually really powerful. It's a, it's a virtuous cycle if you have good writing and good reading together. So I'm hearing some really wonderful ideas of how we can write and read and, and be more cognizant of what we're doing. And the way I see people using ChatGPT, for example, and I don't necessarily think this is ChatGPT's essence, but I think it's the way we're using it, is actually, as I think Sonia started to get to, to bypass doing that. So if we're creating these tools that sort of help us skip this step, how do we be conscious to go back to doing the things, using the pen and using the our brains when the world around us is sort of built to help us skip that? You, you use the phrase, you, you know, go back to the pen. People are wired differently and they have different tactile needs and so forth. Very few people use pens anymore. You know, but when I was in high school and college, I was one of the rare breeds that was a really good typist because I had started on computers really early. Is there are there very many people on this planet that don't know how to use a QWERTY keyboard effectively? And so what are the things that are now part of the human computer interface? that are going to be the dominant input or interaction models that will replace the keyboard and the mouse. There's no reason why it has to be this fluid flowing through a pen to a little ball or a, a quill on parchment, you know, that was made out of dead trees to be able to think clearly and write. There's no reason why we won't be able to use more and more human computer interfaces. And like I do, I don't, when I write, I type, I just do. My handwriting has always been horrible. Um, I can't even read it myself. And, and, and so I don't have a problem with that. Maybe, you know, I know there's other people that do. They, they have to write. Like my sister uses an iPad and, and, she, and her journaling, she does it with a, one of those pens that gives her tactical feedback. And she loves it. Drives me nuts. So I think there's a, 
there's a place for a lot of different modalities of communicating. Jacob, I'm curious about something. Um, I'm going to pivot slightly here, and Jamie, push me back if I'm going in the too far off. But I'm thinking about your times as you were working on Alexa and how you created something that can interact so well with us through voice alone. What were some of the things that you and your team had to take into consideration as you were creating this person? I'm going to call it person. Uh, one of them was discoverability. It turns out it's really hard because it is not actually human and it doesn't have all the human ability to infer intent. Uh, it's very hard for humans to have any idea what it can do. And so just the challenge, it's still there. It's still like a, a, a big uh, negative driver of usage of these devices and these interaction models is, you know, humans, like it gets tiring trying to guess what you can ask an Alexa. And, um, and so that's, that was always a challenge. Um, also, like setting down what, what were uh, Alexa's principles, the rules for how she, because we did make a conscious decision that the personality was a she, that predated me, would behave. Would she be polite? Would she be terse? Would she be verbose? Would she be challenging or submissive? Those were all things that we had to debate and then figure out you know, where to take a stand. Uh, and that was a really fascinating part about it. And then all sorts of uh, opportunities came out, things that, that I don't think were originally envisioned. One of my favorite was this idea of whisper mode. Today, if you talk to, I'm going to be careful saying her name out loud because she's right behind me and she's going to go off. But there's now, you, you can whisper to her. And she'll respond whispering. Uh, and that was an interesting invasion. Another one was, and for some reason, Amazon took this out. It was in there for a while, but polite mode. You could turn on flight mode where your children would have to say please at the end of any request. And so those are interesting dynamics as well. That is the dynamic between the user and the machine. How can you predict you are a different user than I am? Jamie's a different user. How were you able to make this product so versatile to match your, my, Jamie's needs? Well, there's, there's a big part of it, which is automated speech recognition, which is the part where, where, where these, these systems are able to uh, detect different intonation and, and uh, accents and turn those into words. So that's ASR. And then the next step of the process is NLU, natural language understanding, which takes those words and tries to understand the intent and then convert that into an intent. Are you asking to turn on a set of lights or are you asking, you know, whether it's light outside? And so there's those two different systems and they both use different forms of quote unquote AI, machine learning uh, uh, systems, deep, deep learning and so forth. Uh, very different, by the way, from what the chat GPTs of the world do now. It's, a, it's actually a, a, almost a completely different technology. People shouldn't be confused about those. So that part about it was, was very deep science and, and, and high tech. But there's, there's, there's stuff at the higher levels of the, of the interface. And a good one from the, the smart home aspects, which is a part that I was really focused on, is what you're, if you use, use Alexa a lot to control the devices in your home and control your environment, turn on the kitchen lights or, or turn off all the lights or raise the temperature, make it warmer in here. And you use that a lot. How do you want Alexa to respond each time you do that? 
Now, if I was with a human being and I, that was, that was someone that, that was used to taking direction from me. And every time that I asked them to do something, they were very verbose in their response. Like, okay, I'll do that now. If they did that every time, I'd be super annoyed. Turns out it's the same thing is true with, with these services. And so when we first launched the smart home capabilities, we set it up so that the response was just a beep. You would say, Alexa, turn on the kitchen lights. And it would go bleep. And it would be a positive, I got it, and the lights would turn on. And we did that because our intuition was that most humans would be doing it a lot, and they would get annoyed if every time they asked her to do something, she would say something verbal. Turns out, we got a lot of feedback from customers that they really liked it when she said, okay. So then you're in the debate, okay, so some humans like it, like just the terseness of a beep. Some actually want it silent. Some want her to say something. Do you now add a setting? And this is the challenge of user experience design is, okay, so now you add a setting. Well, how do you discover that setting? And I come back to the topic I started with, which is discoverability is really hard. And we, so we spent a lot of time arguing over these things and debating, trying to get data from customers um, and then trying experiments and seeing what worked. That was a big part of the challenge. It still is. So that leads to my next question. If you do everything right, if you do everything right, then artificial intelligence, I'm going to call it this, it could be anything, it doesn't matter what shape it takes, is going to just appeal to the way that I interact with someone. It's going to be just the right partner, interactive partner for me. You're smiling. I think you know where I'm heading. Is, is it possible that at some point I become attached to, to this intelligence? I'm calling it intelligence because it's someone who can become my discussion partner, my conversational friend. Well, first of all, that has already happened. There's lots of cases of, of, of feedback from customers we got at Amazon of um, where we, we changed something. And the parents sent a support request saying, please change it back. My kids are distraught because Alexa has changed in this way. So that there's no doubt. There's also the other side of it, which there's no reason why you will like every AI you interact with. Some of them are gonna rub you the wrong way, just as some humans rub you the wrong way, for sure. The thing that's the most exciting about uh, the world we live in and we're gonna be living in is we can be using these computer-driven systems to augment ourselves. And, and I talked about my biases earlier. Uh, let's take recency bias as an example. Computers don't have recency bias. They don't. They can look at all the data going back as far back in time, and they can do the, the weighted view of it and show that, no, here's the data. What you're seeing right now isn't any worse than it was a long time ago. You know, today is not bad simply because, you know, a, a bomb went off somewhere. Like the, that happened previously many, many times. And, and so I think that we can, we will more and more use these systems as ways of augmenting our view of the world and the way we perceive events in a very positive way, where basically, excuse my French, but they'll call BS on us and our biases. And like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, yeah, you just read all that news and you're freaking out. But let's look at, let me tell you about what really happened and what the real data is. I'm just using recency bias as, a, as an example. How does it know what the real data is? That's a great question. That's, and, and it is one of the risks that we, we already see in these systems where uh, the data that's feeding into them is the same data that's been biased by history, right? History is written by the winners. 
Right? That is a truism. It's been true since the beginning of human history. And it's probably not going to change. So yes, the underlying data has biases in it. Uh, my hope is that over time, as uh, more and more of these systems go online, more and more of all of the data that we've collected, you know, the Library of Congress and, and all the books are fed into them, and there is a much more balanced view. I think over time, uh, this will actually make it harder for the winners to write history. It can't necessarily change the fact that previous history was written by the winners, but it definitely can make it harder for people to um, rewrite history or to uh, ignore the other side because computers don't forget. Okay, computers don't forget. How do we know what are facts? There's still a question to what the truth is. And I don't have a simple answer for that. That's a, that, that is, that is uh, something we will, we'll have to continue to face. It's not new. Let's talk about retail advertising and grocery stores. You know, if you go to Amazon to go shop today, you're, you're shown a lot of sponsored products and products that are elevated to the top. They're, they're sorted by the brands are paying Amazon to sort these things. Is that truth? Is that fact? No, it's not. But when the concept of the retail grocery store was, was introduced in the, at the turn of the century, one of the first things that happened is the brands realized that the end cap was super valuable. Grocery stores don't put the best products on the end cap because out of the goodness of their heart. They put it there because someone's paid them to put it there. That is not a new phenomenon. And so let's recognize that, yeah, while we, we're in this world of, of, of a lot of fake news and systems that amplify it like it's never been amplified before, it's not a new phenomenon. It's something we will have to, and for the, the remainder of the, the survival of the species, it's something that we will always have to deal with. I just had to think that perception is reality. You mentioned earlier that an artificial intelligence, someone who we interact with, would help us, would call us out on things that we do wrong. I'm thinking you as a leadership coach must have many of these situations when, where you build trust with someone and they want you to tell them or to show them, to mirror what they're doing so they can see the truth, they can see the reality. As a coach, I would love to be, have a tool that helps me better remember everything that I learned about has gone on in that client's life. Because then when I'm hearing them talking about something, I would be more accurate in my understanding of, uh, of, of the situation. And I don't have a perfect memory. And so I would love that. Jamie and I were having a conversation. She had this thought of how an artificial intelligence can, can enhance human interaction by, let's say, I'm meeting a new person and I want to start a small talk. And then suddenly an artificial intelligence can give me all Twitter or X information that is on on is available there or what is on Facebook around this person. Give me a gist of the what is person talking about so I can start a small talk around that. That goes uh, in a similar direction, obviously. For you, it would be more like a file available readily. We were talking about different forms of human-computer interaction. And one of the things that we're getting better at is using visual inter interaction. 
for human computer screens, but you know, with augmented re reality, um, you know, eventually we're not going to have computer screens anymore. We're going to have some technology that's directly imprinting onto our retinas. Um, imagine if you were able to understand when you meet someone, know a little bit about their personality style. Like there are a set number of personality styles of of humans, and it's proven that if you understand what someone else's personality style is, understand what yours are, and you know a little bit about the differences, you have more empathy. You have the ability to interact with that person in a better way. And so I think it'd be pretty cool use of the technology if, you know, when you meet someone, given their permission and so forth, you know they're, you know, they're wired this way. Uh, and it could be as simple as, oh, well, I know I don't get along with people like that, so I'm going to make this really brief and I'm going to move on. Or it could be, hey, this is how I can interact with this person in a way that really makes us a great interaction. Yeah, you're bringing a very, very interesting point because I, I always look for five things, words, tones, facial expressions, gestures, and postures. When I talk to someone, it can tell me a lot about how this person processes information, how they perceive the world around them, how they interact, how they prefer to interact with me. And I try and adapt the way I interact with them based on what they need. Artificial intelligence could give me that. So I don't have to spend any brain power analyzing that, or I can focus on what, what I am saying versus how I'm saying it. But I believe that how we say things is, is almost as important, if not more important than what we're saying. And four of those five things are lost in text. You only have the words. But if you have AI to bring in the intonation and the smell-o-vision, perhaps, then, then you get the sense of place and of being there with the person. You can learn so much more than just what the words are saying. And that goes back to how we started conversation when we said artificial or virtual communication, asynchronous communication. There is a delay and there is only one thing. There's only words. We don't go into the whole conversation. We don't pick up on everything else. We can't tell where this person is or what this person feels truly based on words alone. So take, thank you very, very much. We really appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us today. I do. I do have one question for you, Tig. Are we there yet? We are not there yet. There's a lot of time left in this universe, and we're just getting started. Oh, this was such a satisfying discussion. I love how curious Tigger is and how clearly enamored he is with AI. It eases my anxiety a little bit to peek behind the curtain at how Alexa was developed and how that informs what we're thinking about for the future. Yes, I, I really enjoyed the way he was talking about how they trained Alexa and what Alexa needed to know in order to adapt to the user and what were some of the behaviors uh, in interaction between human and the machine and how that results in the, the way that we use Alexa. It was fascinating. And also how they had to iterate and they would see what worked and what didn't work. So they almost brought sort of a, another human layer. You know, they, the humans made it, the AI sort of took it over, then humans interacted with it, then humans reflected on that interaction and then made more changes. So it's a, it was a lot more human-led than I sort of thought before. So have a lovely week and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Jamie. You too. You too.